When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It's so good to have you here hanging out today. I'm supposed to be taking a little break, a little holiday break for myself, but I was really excited to get this particular episode out because I loved this book that we're talking about today. And actually this conversation was recorded a few weeks ago. I originally gave this book a 4.5, but thinking back on the best books I've read of 2021, I think that Saving Us by Katherine Hayhoe is definitely a five-star book and very likely one of the top five, at the very minimum, top 10 books that I read last year. Before we get into today's episode, let's talk about what we're reading. We are reading Saving Us, A Climate Scientist Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World by Dr. Katherine Hayhoe. It was released publicly in September of this year, very highly anticipated, and it was a book that received a lot of attention and feedback online because it is a human-centric approach to the climate conversation that we really haven't gotten in this way before. Katherine Hayhoe is one of my very favorite people in science, period. I've said this before on the show, Catherine Hayhoe was the reason I felt like I could be a climate communicator. When I was in graduate school studying climate science, it was still very much an old boys club, and it felt like I didn't have a lot of people to look up to, which is kind of a sad thing to say, and I don't mean to say that like to pity myself. I mean that I was looking for women in the space. And Catherine Hayhoe is one of the most compassionate voices in climate change. And I think that's why I'm so drawn to her style and her education and her platform. Gender aside, I was very honored to speak with Dr. Hayhoe on an earlier episode of the show. It actually came out Earth Day of 2020. And I'm going to link that episode in the show notes because it's one that I'm really, really proud of and one that felt like... A very full circle moment for myself. So I'm going to link that in the show notes. I want you to check it out. But if you've never heard of her before and you're just like, Laura, who is this that you're gushing about? Let me tell you, Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist and she is the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy. She's also an endowed professor in public policy and public law and a Paul W. Horn distinguished professor at Texas Tech University. She's been named a United Nations Champion of the Earth and one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. I'm telling you, she's a big deal. And she serves as a climate ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance and World Vision Canada. Catherine was a lead author for the U.S. Second, Third, and Fourth National Climate Assessments and hosts a PBS digital series, Global Weirding. So yeah, she's a big deal. And I'm probably a little jaded and a little biased going into this book because I love her work. I love her platform. 
So I knew that I was going to enjoy this book and I wanted to make sure that we were reading it with someone really special in this community, someone that I felt like I could be very open and vulnerable with throughout the reading process and especially while recording. So we are joined today by our friend Emily Stokel. Emily Stokel has also been on the show before, and maybe you listen to her regularly. If you enjoy this show, I bet you enjoy Emily's show, The Pre-Loved Podcast, where she talks all things vintage, secondhand, sustainable fashion. It is a really great show, deep dives on what it means to be a truly pre-loved garment. And when Emily was on Eco Chic, I'll also link her episode down below. I don't know if I've mentioned that already, but I've got a lot of promises to you. But when Emily was on Eco Chic, we spoke in depth about garment workers and the Garment Worker Protection Act that was on the table in the state of California that has since been passed. It's a bill that has now been passed. Emily does a lot of incredible work with Remake. She does a lot of incredible advocacy and education work, and she also works professionally in the thrift space. She works at a vintage shop. So she has this really beautiful body of knowledge about what sustainable fashion really looks like from the inside out, from the policy side, from the practical side. So I love her approach to sustainable fashion. Emily also used to work in publishing, so she reads a whole lot. And I open up the conversation actually just thanking Emily for her friendship because in the course of both of our shows running for the years that they have now, we've really leaned on each other. We actually had the privilege of meeting in real life about six months ago, and I just loved it. You know, I love this community. I love that I can make friends like this, and I love that this is something that all of us can enjoy together. So I want to thank you for tuning into Book Club especially because this feels like one of the most community-oriented things that we do. We can all read together. If this is your first book club here on Eco Chic, let me tell you about Book Club Once a month, we read a book as a community. It's a book that has something to do with climate, environmentalism. We've read some climate fiction. We've read some fashion books. And we read alongside with a friend in the space. So other sustainability professionals, other climate advocates, other sustainability influencers, just people who we all know and love. Book Club is a cool episode to record because while I know I'm reading alongside someone, we have very different interpretations of whatever it is that we're reading, of course. So we come to the recordings with no pre-written questions most of the time. I know what I want to talk about, and usually whoever I'm speaking with has their thoughts on the book and what they want to bring up in the conversation, but it's a totally natural conversation, really free-flowing, honest, vulnerable, because... We're reading and we're talking about things that resonate with us and things that we found valuable and interesting and entertaining and fun and cool. So I love these episodes. I love that y'all love them. And you know what? On the topic of that, let me go ahead and give you a plug. I think that this is going to be the last opportunity for us to submit the survey. If you haven't heard, I have opened a survey to listeners to give feedback on the show as I'm planning the next year. I want to make sure that the show is growing with you and what you care about and what you want to learn about, what you want to hear. And I always like to say it shouldn't be my show. It should be our show. I really want to make sure that this is something that you enjoy and that we all are just growing within the new year. So I'm going to go ahead and link the survey down below. It shouldn't take more than five minutes. Really quick, it's a Google form. You can do it while you're listening to this episode. 
And if you want to give more specific feedback there, you can. I do have a question about book clubs and the frequency of book clubs. The questions are pretty open-ended, like check what applies, multiple choice, and then there's an open-ended portion at the end for you to submit any more specific feedback or things that you really liked or things you want me to keep in mind moving forward. So thank you in advance for completing the survey. I think that's the only housekeeping that we have today. On the topic of book club, I suppose, a reminder that our next book and what should be our final book for the year, I'm a little behind, is Braiding Sweetgrass. I've been very, very excited to read this. It's been on my want to read for a very long time, and we're reading along my friend Samira, who hosts the podcast Environment and List. So Braiding Sweetgrass, that episode should be out soon. With that, I hope you are having a really fabulous day. I hope you are taking time to reset and recharge and enjoying this time of year. And I look forward to hanging out with you soon. Enjoy the episode. Emily, welcome back. Uh, I'm excited to chat with you today because, I mean, I appreciate our friendship so much. I think that podcasting is a very intimate media, but it's like such a good community that it just forces you to make friends. So I'm happy to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. I have been wanting to do a book club with you for a while because you're such a reader. You used to work in publishing. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Yep. No, years ago. um, That was like my first career journey. And I still sometimes think about like where my life would be if it had gone down that route. But reading has remained a big part of my life. Like, I feel like even though I don't work in the book world, like specifically anymore, I still, we still work in the world of storytelling. Right. So like, that's a lot of how I talk about what I do now is, um, it's still very much writing, storytelling, all those same ideas, crafting a message that connects with people. Yeah, absolutely. That is such a nice way to look at it. I feel like you also read such a variety of books within the space of sustainability, of sustainable fashion, in the fashion world in general. And I feel like sometimes it's very easy to fall into these traps, I suppose, of reading the same thing over and over again. Like when we talk about preaching to the choir, half the time, that's what I feel like when I'm just reading general environmental books. I'm like, how is this any different from the last thing? But you always manage to find really interesting picks. There's so much variety out there. And I think that that's important for people to know. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think sometimes people think like, it's all going to be, I don't know, what's that book? Sixth Extinction, like dense, like world ending type information. And obviously like a lot of information about the climate emergency is really intense, but there's just so much variety. Like there's manifestos that are like really short and snappy and give you helpful advice for how to get involved. There's more like lifestyle stuff and how to make individual changes. There's more political or academic stuff. Um, and then there's even like eco fiction or poetry or, you know, just stuff that like connects to your heart and why you do this too. So I feel like there's a huge amount of breath. That's why I think it's so cool that you do these book clubs. I think that's something I've learned from these book clubs. Oh, yeah. There is so much variety. At first, I was like, oh, God, I have to read Naomi Klein 12 times a year. But that's certainly (laughs) not what it is. There's so much variety. And 
not to segue to immediately, but that's something that I loved about Saving Us. Yeah. That it was a book that felt very fresh to the Mm -hmm. climate conversation. I feel like this is a book that I could recommend to people who are not a part of this conversation already. And that's something that I don't get a lot. Like, not even that it's introductory, but just the way that it was so human centered and like people centered, it felt like anyone could read this and have something to take away from it. And I thought that that was really different. I felt like it was very compassionate, which is not yeah. a word that I ever really attached to climate literature. No, it's so true. It's so true. Very human, very compassionate, and it approaches the reader wherever they are, you know, and there's, there's something for everyone. That's why I like, like I said, I feel like I could, you can really get outside the echo chamber of our world with this book. And this would be one that you know, folks who aren't regularly having these conversations could pick up this book. And I feel like get more connected to the movement. Yeah, absolutely. I felt like perhaps I went into it looking for that sort of human element and that compassion because in the preface of the book, Catherine Hayhoe very clearly says the goal of this book is to allow you to have conversations about the climate crisis or to allow you to bridge those gaps. And it opens up with this comparison to political divides and why we find those same divides in the climate crisis. And then the rest of the book is like, how do we bridge this divide? How do we get people together? How do we get people to care about the science, if at all? So I felt like it was so clear from the get-go what the goal was. And the goal ultimately was unite people. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she even opens, you know, she's talking about bridging the political divide, like this comparison that's so relevant to us all. We've lived this day to day for the last two years, but the comparison of how science and um, the media and people and people across the political spectrum handled response to COVID, like it's such a relevant comparison to what we've been experiencing with climate for the last decade more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Something that really struck me in this book when it came to the conversation around why do certain people not accept climate change was this research around psychology and frameworks. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, for a lot of people, accepting climate change is a threat to their most core beliefs and philosophies and values. So being able to say, actually those values are completely in line with the climate conversation. That was a very powerful thing for me to come to terms with, I suppose. Like there is this preaching to the choir element of the work that we do that we assume everyone's on board with it. And the people that aren't, it's like, okay, well, I'm just not going to worry about them right now. But it's like, okay, how do we actually reach those folks who aren't yet concerned or are just adding climate change to a list of general headlines or a list of general concerns? It's really about how you identify your own values and how you recognize other people's values. Yeah. I mean, some of her research shows that this issue is like an identity issue, like people, how they respond to the climate issue. People have such intense responses because they feel as though it's like core to their identity. Um, 
you know, she, she was, she was writing about like how people think about this as, you know, if, if we bring up conversations about climate and it's not something that they're on board with, or they don't see the same way as we do, that they feel as though their morality is being brought into question. Right. And so I think to people, issues like this, it's important to remember are not we don't think of them as ideas or opinions. Like it's like very core to the framework we've constructed of who we are. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that reminds me of an example she kept going back to, or I suppose like a group she kept going back through throughout the book was that of religious divides and Christian groups who do or do not accept climate change. And I would not consider myself a particularly religious person but I'm really fascinated by this continuous case study she gave of Mm -hmm. how do you reach religious groups in a conversation where either they do not accept or they feel like they're already taken care of by this higher power. So I guess I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about that too. Like, I feel like there was so much back and forth on the religious front that I didn't know how to take in as a bystander at first. And then I totally got where she was coming from. I think like how I tried to think about this because same, I would not consider myself a religious person. However, I have a lot of people who are very close to me in my life who would consider themselves very religious. And I, I even have people who are very close to me who are passionate about, like there are people who I'm like, I have to give this book to them because they're passionate about environmentalism and they don't know how to reach the folks in their church community about those beliefs. And like, this is the book for you. And I think the thing about it is, is that she was coming from a place where when she was talking to the church groups about how she, she thinks her identity as a Christian is so tied to her identity as a climate scientist and environmentalist because of love of the earth and love of the people around us. Right. Like she was talking to her people. And I think her takeaway from that was that we should each go out and talk to our people. Like we should talk to the people that we have the ability to connect with the best about the things that we're most passionate about. And for her, it was um, this group of church growers. And I'm sure that, you know, many people can relate to that. But um, I took that case study as like, how can I use that as an example to think about the groups that I'm a part of, the social groups that I'm a part of and what we're passionate about and how it connects back to this cause that I'm also passionate about. Yeah, I really liked that angle of reach out to people that you are already in touch with. She gave an example of a man that reached out to her saying, I really think Christian groups are important to involve, but he himself was not a Christian. And her response was like, well, then you shouldn't be the one doing the outreach, like reach out to community groups that you're a part of or activities that you're a part of. For me, at first I was like, well, duh. But then also I'm like, do I do that unconsciously? Not necessarily with religion groups, but with groups that I'm not a part of. You think that you can influence people that are separate from you. But ultimately, if you're not looking into your own, in your own groups, in like in the people that share those identities and those beliefs with you, those, those are the people that you're going to reach and actually going to impact. Absolutely. I was just taken back 
to, I used to work in museum world. I used to work in the arts. And if you've ever worked in any sort of arts organization, you've probably had somebody from like the upper, you know, upper employment tier or board or whatever of this arts organization, like have this idea in their head, what are we doing to reach young people? What are we doing to reach low income families, X, Y, Z, like find whatever the group may be. And it just reminded me of that so much because so often it, it's a, they're outside that group. And so they're like trying to speak about instances that they don't understand the experiences and the perspectives and it's just not the best person to be or like it's just not the best strategy to be reaching that group and so like a lot of arts organizations there are some really great books about this one that comes to mind is called like the art of relevance I can't remember who the author is it's right over there on my bookshelf so it made me think of it but it's basically about how arts organizations can, if they are trying to um, become a more integral part of certain groups, how important it is to have those groups leading that conversation, to have that representation on their board, on their staff, um, to have them leading the community discussions, to have them implementing programming that matters to you. And, you know, this sounds like it's getting off track, but like that was just what was going through my head when this person was talking about, I think this is important because like it is important. You think about it being a big group of people or a big demographic that's not being reached, but it's just that implementation of like how to get to them. People are well-meaning perhaps, well-intentioned, but maybe don't have the right approach to what bringing that group of people into the fold, like how to do that most effectively. No, you're totally right. I was thinking the same thing about approach. And it also, I thought about this a little bit also when she shared a conversation around science and some of the research around how do people react to very serious science. Mm. And there's a very delicate balance of scariness, I suppose, that has to exist for people to be motivated enough to act. But if you go a little too far, it's in action. It is, well, I might as well just enjoy my time that I have. Mm. Oh, I might as well just not worry about this and add this lower to my list because there's nothing that I can do. So action is also an interesting one that you have to have this balance within your approach to actually get people to do anything. Because it's one thing to say, like, I acknowledge climate change. It's another thing to say, I am so concerned about climate change. I'm going to make sure that my vote in the next local election is reflective of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think goes back to it it kind of near the beginning of the book, she gives the numbers and I don't have all the numbers written down, but like, um, a very small percentage. I actually, I do have this one written down. Only 7% of people are openly dismissive of climate change. And that's the group that we have in our head. I think when we think about like a doing nothing or holding us back from change is that openly dismissive group. Um, However, um, there's a larger amount of people who are just disengaged and there's an even larger amount of people who are like aware, but cautious. So they're 
aware of the issue, but they're just like not sure if the things that are we're needing to do in order to solve the climate emergency are worth doing or how they will affect their life. So they're like not openly dismissive, but they're just also not gung-ho about pushing for change, right? And so like those are much, much, much larger groups of people. And um, that I think it gets left out of the conversation so often. I think people are often really focused about like, how do I convince the really vocal denier? And that's not really the person to focus on. The person to focus on is this very large group of people who are aware, but disengaged or not convinced by the solutions. Yeah, I think I think that was just, that was so interesting because those are the people, like you were saying, who they've maybe heard the science. They wouldn't say that they deny the science or disagree with the science, but it's also not top of their agenda by any means. Correct. Correct. And I think something else that really struck me in this approach to those that acknowledge the science, but aren't particularly gung-ho about being climate activists was this conversation or this chapter, I suppose, more largely about the difference between guilt and shame Mm. and that there is a level of guilt that is healthy and there is a level of peer pressure in the climate conversation that is healthy and encourages people to act and encourages people to um, change the way that they live their daily lives or engage with this content more day to day. And then when it gets unhealthy is when it's shameful. If you are making someone feel bad about their choices that doesn't actually help them want to change at all, which I thought was a really interesting dichotomy. Is that the word I'm looking for between things that I assumed were so similar at one point? I say this a lot with consumer guilt too. Maybe you Mm. feel this way. Like I think so heavily about something before I purchase it because I'm like, did I make the best decision? Did I, was I as conscious as possible? Did I buy from an ethical brand? there's a level of guilt that's really healthy because it forces me to think deeply about my purchases and it forces me to make sure that I'm purchasing from brands that I am really well aligned with. But if I am buying something and I'm ashamed of it, or if I am someone who's like a big fast fashion purchaser and my friends are just telling me like, well, you're destroying the planet. Does that really help me make any change or motivate me to do anything differently? Probably not. So that difference and that balance of saying like, I am compassionate enough towards this person to encourage them to do the right thing, but I am not so focused on the climate aspect of this relationship that we have to make them feel bad about themselves. That's exactly it. I mean, if you just like think about a practical application, if you're constantly making your friends feel bad, for example, about shopping fast fashion, which is like the example that most readily applies to my life, like you're just going to get an eye roll, you know, they're not actually going to care or do anything about it. And so something that I personally try to do, I don't know if I achieve it in my life or not, but what I try to do is I try to come from a place of inspiration. And so when I'm talking about why I choose secondhand instead of new, for example, like I always try to come from all the ways that I think it's cool and exciting and fun and inspiring and try to like win them over from that direction. And I very rarely approach the guilt or shame side of the conversation. I I do get what she was saying about how there is an amount of peer pressure that is um, 
helpful. And I guess maybe my approach to that peer pressure is like, just like trying to make thrifting seem like cool. (laughs) Again, like, I'm like, I don't know if I achieved this, but I'm like trying to pull them in from the, the opposite side is better than what you've got currently rather than shame them into quitting. Correct. And that also makes me think a little bit about the plastic straw conversation that was especially popular a few years ago when there is a guilt around using a plastic straw, or I still even get it every once in a while from friends if we're going out and they're like, oh, sorry, I just, I've got this giant cup. They feel like they need to say sorry to you. (laughs) Yes. They feel like they need to apologize. And my response is always like, I, I don't care. Like I get it. This is a, you know, a 16 ounce mason jar. Like, of course you need a straw because it's just, you know, so whatever it is, it's like, to me, it's not about the straw to me. It's like, I'm glad that you're thinking more deeply about your choices, Mm. but don't feel like you need to explain yourself to me. And I think that is like the healthy amount of guilt Mm. that maybe some people need to acknowledge. Yeah. That's a really great point. That's a really great point. Yeah. I I'm curious to know, do you find yourself in conversations often where you have to convince anyone of maybe the, maybe we want to say like in the climate crisis, just given the context of the book, but maybe even in going against fast fashion or not buying from those brands, do you feel like you have to use these frameworks a lot? One that I am really super conscious of is, and like this example just song to me in this book um but essentially it was the person who so I live in the Midwest I live in Iowa um and essentially it was the person who described themselves as a fiscal conservative um which like whatever we could get into unpacking those. Oh, <laughs> we're not going to go there today. <laughs> but like that was the words that were used, right? So like the person who describes themselves that way. But then like um, in the book, Catherine Hayhoe connected to this person and um, got them excited about, I think it was solar panels because that was something that could enhance their identity as like a thrifty, fiscally conservative type person. And that is something that I have seen played out in Iowa time and time again um, with the windmill conversation. I know a lot of farmers who have put windmills in on their land or who have like really readily embraced that solution. And it's, I think it's because someone explained it to them in that way that connects with them and um, why it's, you know, why it's make sense for their identity to do that. Like I experienced this. I was recently helping, um, a friends get out the vote efforts, um, for her city council campaign. And this was something that like, uh, she's, she's an environmentalist. She's a climate scientist. And this was something that, um, we kept hearing like again and again, people, it would surprise us them bringing up solar or wind solutions, um, in conversations that like, otherwise their political beliefs, it might've surprised us that they brought that up. And it's like the messaging there, it seems like is sticking somehow. And I think that's, that's super important. Yeah, I agree. That reminds me a lot of the Tesla movement. Mm. Who are the folks that are primarily buying Teslas? Like Tesla is not sold as 
the car of the environmentalist. It right. is sold as a luxury vehicle that just happens to also be electric. Yeah. Who is it that's buying Teslas? Like I'm thinking like the Joe Rogan listeners of the world, like, right. te- you know, like who is it that's gung ho about Elon yeah. Musk? It is not big time environmentalists. And why is that? It's because it's been framed as this like solution that it's great that there's a climate benefit, but actually it saves you money long-term or like, yeah. actually you can go X amount of miles without a charge. And it's sold as this really, yeah, like really beautiful luxury solution to things that these folks are already concerned about and hold as core values in their car shopping habits. And it's just a nice plus that it also helps reduce your personal emissions. Literally everything is marketing. Like everything is the spin that's put on it. And I feel like that's something I feel like Catherine Hayhoe would agree that the climate, climate scientists have not been good at thinking of the spreading of their message, the evangelizing of their message, how, whatever word you want to use, like as marketing, as something that's like a sell and everything is, whether it's consumer choices or political ideologies, like that's the world that we live in. It's like, what is the spin? What is the brand? What is the marketing sell on this? Exactly. Exactly what I was thinking. And even there was one example that really stuck with me was someone describing like why we care about polar bears or why we're so affected Mm. by the visuals of polar bears. And that really got me thinking because polar bears to me is like this, um, like this really sad commercial with sad music in the background, these dying polar bears donate to world wildlife fund, et cetera. Why does that pull on your heartstrings? And this person explained it as like the polar bears are important to us because they show us what's going to happen Mm. to humans. And the marketing of polar bears as this, this group that has been very unfortunately impacted by climate change so severely and so, so visibly gets people concerned about climate change because they're like, oh, wow, now it's finally hitting me that it's real. And if people don't have this sort of like visual marker, this marketing of like, what is climate change? Mm -hmm. Of course, they're not going to care. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where my question is here in the global North, because I feel like the wider globe, um, certainly has a perspective that climate, the climate emergency is already here and already affecting people. But like, where is the messaging here in the global North that speaks to the fact that this is like already something that is impacting people, you know, and gets people to connect those dots. Yeah. There was a comment made on, one of the climate scientists that she featured, or maybe it was a young climate activist that said like, I was motivated because I realized my children may likely Mm. never see a beach. And that's me. Like that was really, I had never put it in that kind of extreme context before for myself. And that really fired me up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've spent, I don't know. I think we've spent too long thinking that this is like your grandchildren's problem. Like these realities will happen in in our lifetime, you know? And I I just, where is the mainstream messaging? Because like that is certainly something that fires up the youth climate movement 100% and frontline activists who are day-to-day experiencing this change already. But the broader, um, more the general public, like, where is that connection? Where is that messaging? Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Absolutely. I agree. Before we go into our 
final ratings of the book. I would All love right. to know if there's <laughs> I would love to know if there's anything that you felt like wasn't well explained or anything that you wanted more of that this book didn't deliver. Something that I thought and and maybe this was a great strategy because it just allowed the listener to apply that practice in their own you know, experience, but like we talked about how she had such great conversations with the church groups and she had so many examples of changing minds. And there were a few other examples. I think there were examples, um, from some like outdoor activities groups that she spoke to, but I would have even loved more, like, even if it was, or this maybe even would be like interesting follow-up information to the book, like interviews with other people who've like, I want to hear about more people using what they've learned from this book to have those conversations with different groups of people, because I think that'll help me even get like more fine-tuned about how I bring this information into various groups. You know, like I was writing down like, what are like my people, you know, that I can be like talking to about this. So I was thinking about like, I'm a big gardener. And so like, in what ways am I talking about this with the gardening community? Perhaps those examples are a little bit more obvious, Um, but like an Iowan, you know, not as obvious. I'm a vintage seller. I'm an aunt, you know, like what are the ways that just thinking about like, how do I take this message of this book and apply it to my life? And I would love to hear more examples from more people who have read this book about how they plan to take its knowledge out into their life. Yeah. I think that's a really thoughtful sentiment about the book. I felt like going through the identity portion, just like you, I was like, okay, who are my people? Who are my groups? I felt both empowered and a little disempowered, I suppose, Mm -hmm. because a lot of my identity was tied on the climate crisis. Like Mm -hmm. I host a podcast about climate change and sustainability. Like this is your profession. Yeah. Yeah. This is my, I work in the space professionally. I, I talk to people all day about climate change. So I'm like, okay, what are the fringes? Like, where can I plug myself in and be a member of a community that I'm passionate about? that is separate from this because I realize that because so much of my life is tied up into this work, it's very easy to fall into burnout. And I talk pretty openly now about like climate anxiety and burnout. And I'm exhausted of talking about this because a lot of the time it, it forces you to say like, yes, this is a crisis. This is an emergency and no one is acting. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's so many times where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Like I need to just, you know, disassociate. I need to like spend three days offline. I need to, so I get into these rabbit holes myself. So this book forced me to be like, there is a world outside of climate change. Mm -hmm. There are people that want to hear from it or hear about climate change that are not the people that you're regularly interacting with. And there's space for you outside of the climate movement. And that doesn't make you any less passionate about it. Yeah. Did you come up with any, um, any ideas about like groups or identities that you share with people that you'd like to start having those conversations more? Funny enough, I thought a lot about, um, I thought a lot about my trivia group. Like I, (laughs) I play a lot of trivia. I always have like everywhere I move, I try to find a good trivia group and I've found a great team and no one really knows each other from anything else, but we all get along really well. And like, these are the people I'm reaching out to once a week. 
So that was like a funny one that I kind of fell into. And then similar to you, it was like fashion communities online, vintage resellers. I'm not a reseller. Like I don't, I don't work as deeply in the space as you do, but I'm really interested in it. So these are other people that I could connect with and book groups. Mm. I told you earlier, I've fallen into a hilarious book rabbit hole of like, I love Christmas Hallmark books right now. And I literally cannot get enough of them. And chatting with people about books on a day-to-day, like I would love to join a real life book club or like a supper club or something like that. And something that forces me out of my head a little bit, but those are still people that I can connect with about climate. The coolest book club that I ever went to pre-pandemic, it used to be, um, it was hosted by the public library here. And basically it was just like, book club would have a theme for the month, but everyone picked their own book. So maybe the theme would be like, read a book by a black woman living in America in the 1940s or something like that. Or, you know, there would be a theme, but then you would pick your book and then you would Basically, we would meet up at a bar or a coffee shop and we would go around and tell about our books. And so there'd be like 15 or 20 people there, you know, and so you would hear about 15 or 20 different books and why people liked it. And I found a lot of reasons to sneak climate books in (laughs) to those conversations. But I loved that book club because it was just so interesting to see like everybody coming at it from a different perspective. And I'm like, I want I want more of that in my life again. Oh, I love that. I will have to find something similar yeah. here in Colorado. It was my favorite oh, kind of book cool. club because usually you're all reading the same book, which is great for conversation. But like this was great for finding out like areas of the reading world that you weren't as familiar with from like people of all ages who would come to the book club. So yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Yeah. My other thing was I'm a big hiker and I was sharing with you, like, not only do I love to hike, but this year I'm trying to be a ski girl. I like, I really want to be a skier. And those are whole different communities that care about climate change because it's impacting their recreational activities. So that's also a really fascinating group that I want to tap into more with these conversations because I was sharing this with you before we started recording, like a lot of the time, especially in the last few weeks that I've gone skiing, and someone makes a comment that there's just like not that snow, that much snow this year. Mm-hmm. You know, Colorado hasn't gotten a good big snow dump this year, quite uncharacteristically. And then there's always someone who's like, oh, yeah, climate change. Yep. Oh, yeah. Heard about global warming. And it's like, how do you segue that kind of off the cuff comment into being like, let me tell you. Into a productive conversation. <laughs> yes. You know? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. How much can I talk to people on a gondola about, you know? <laughs> like, Seriously. What's my elevator pitch? What's and my I elevator pitch? I feel like pitch? Catherine Hayhoe has that. Like, I yes. feel like she <laughs> would know how to take that, you know, climate change. The world is warming. Like, she probably has her thing that she goes into. And I'm like, I need to get more practiced about that. Agreed. Agreed. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. So I'm like, maybe it's a matter of practice. And also just forcing myself out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Because... I'm a chatty Kathy and I love to say like, I could talk to a brick wall, but as soon as someone's like, yep, you heard about climate change. I'm like, oh God, how do I navigate myself here? <laughs> we'll get there. We'll, we'll get, get there. there. We'll I get think, there. I think it's, it's just getting started. Like 
not being afraid to make the conversation awkward or to fail, you know, I think that's like what holds us back from having a lot of these conversations and practice. Yeah. Yeah. There's a level of confidence that you need to have in yourself and being informed is really important, but a lot of it, like she says in the book is you don't have to be a climate scientist. You don't have to know all the science. You have to know a little bit just to, you know, hold your ground. But a lot of it is just connecting with people and being compassionate and recognizing that people have different identity frameworks than you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's much more about people skills than book smarts. Yes. yes. <laughs> Emily, what would you rate saving us out of five? Ooh, I would definitely rate saving us like a solid four stars. For me, a five-star read has to be a book that I'm going to read multiple, multiple times, like go to back again every year. I don't rate books five stars very often, but I would solidly rate saving us four stars. And I, I can think of a lot of people that I would want to give this book to or recommend it to, which is also like a true signal of a great book to me. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. I would say 4.5. I'm also very stingy about giving five-star reviews. (laughs) I loved the way that the book was organized. I felt like it was organized in a very fluid way. Like each chapter had subsections. It was very easy to read. And I found myself really sitting and not realizing that an hour had passed, which I feel like is a really good sign. And I think that the only thing that I missed, which was probably very intentional because this is a book about compassion and hope and people skills, is this kind of pressure. Like there was a point Mm. where... There was a point where she mentioned like a lot of the time when people don't accept it, we where people don't agree with us. We're like, they're idiots and we move on. And I'm like, yeah, what about the idiots? Like, what do we do about those people? So, so I guess like a sense of uh, a sense of urgency. I was mm. I was missing at some points. Like she was very careful to say, like, yes, it's an emergency, but let's let's just talk about this for right now. Mm. And this mm. isn't a book about solutions. It's literally a book about how to talk to people. So maybe I'm tacking off half a star for no reason. But (laughs) yeah, I I was like, what do we do about those nut jobs? Like, like (laughs) it helped me to remember that they're only 7% supposedly, supposedly they seem like they're more, but it's a comfort to, to think of them as that small of a number. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Well, thanks for the reminder. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to Ego Chic this week. I hope you enjoyed Book Club. As I said at the top of the show, I want to revise what I said. I said this was a 4.5 book out of 5, but let me tell you, this is a 5-star book and very likely one of the very best books that I read in 2021. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. The best part about Book Club is you can always read any of the books we've talked about in the past and then go back and listen to the episode later on your own time. But if you've made it this far in the episode, let me remind you, rate and review the show always helps me out. You can send it to a friend. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow on Spotify and Spotify just put out ratings for podcasts. So let's make ourselves a five-star show. Have a great day and I will see you in the new year. One of my favorite jokes is when you're closing out like the season and someone says, see you next year and it's already December 29th. I love that joke. Sorry, I had to use it. I'll talk to you later. Bye. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.